Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Steve Wall, and I'm the campus pastor for our Carmel campus. Uh, and three weeks from right now, we'll be having services in Carmel. And so I'm excited about that. And uh, I'm excited for uh, the people in this room that are coming with us to Carmel. Uh, but I also want to apologize in advance if you're coming to Carmel, um, because you're going to hear a lot of stories about my kids. And so if you're coming with us, just know up front that I'm going to talk about my girls a lot. And there, there's a couple reasons for that. One is that uh, my girls have probably taught me as many or more life lessons as anyone else over the last 10 years. And I think if you're a parent, you have kids, you kind of know what I mean by that. You learn a lot of lessons from your kids. The second thing is this. I believe that God gives us children in part to show us a little piece of how he loves us. And so the way I love my girls, I didn't really understand what unconditional love meant until I had kids, and, and now I get a little piece of what that means. And so I think, man, that must be a little bit about how God feels about me. So I talk about them a lot. If you were here last week, I had a story about my kids, and I'm going to do it again. And so I'm sorry, okay? If you're coming to Carmel, I'm sorry. Um, this is a, a Fisher-Price Little People Noah's Ark. And this was my girl's favorite toy uh, when they were preschoolers, when they were toddlers. And um, I, I just saw one of these this week as T-Rock was un, unpacking them for the new Gen Kids area. And I kind of got sad. I got a little misty-eyed because our girls used to play with this all the time. And we had the this plus the extra animals that you can buy a second set because all the toy companies are really good at getting you to spend more money on things. And so we had a whole bunch of animals that wouldn't even fit in the ark when you closed it. Apparently this Noah didn't build it the right size. I don't know. But so we used this for a lot of reasons. We used it to teach the story of Noah. Obviously we used it to play with because toddler's hands are just the right size to fit on these animals and you can't really swallow them or anything. But we also used it as the, uh, you know, what does the lion say? And Grace would say, the lion says, roar, you know, and what does the elephant say? Oh, the elephant says, Bruh! you know, and then what does the giraffe say? And none of us really knew what a giraffe said. And so we kind of like chew, you know, that's what a giraffe says. But then she came up with this and I don't know where she got it, but we'd say, what does Mr. Noah say? And she'd say, well, Mr. Noah says, all aboard. And so I thought that was clever and funny. And so it was fun for her to play with and it was fun for me. And, and, um, but the sad part for me is like my kids have outgrown this now, you know, this is. They're, they're eight and ten, and they would never, ever think, hey, where's that little people Noah's Ark? Can we play with that again? And, and I feel sad because um, we've relegated it to the baby toys, you know, so that our friends, when they have, our friends that have little kids come over, they have something to play with. And I feel like we've kind of exiled it and put it away and, and like we're never going to bring it out and use it again. And we're starting this series today called Amazing Stories, and we're going to talk in this series about six stories from the Old Testament uh, that, that maybe if you grew up in church or even if you've, you've been around in church at all, you've probably heard these stories from the Old Testament, but, but maybe you've put them away. You know, maybe you've relegated them to the closet because you feel like they're kids' stories, they're baby stories. And so over this uh, series, while we're in this, we're going to talk about some stories that most of us know, you know stories that maybe you heard a lot growing up, but you don't think have any application for your life. You know, as we mature and our faith matures, we can kind of kick these stories to the curb and think they don't mean anything for us anymore. And what we hope you'll find over the six weeks of this series is that, that instead of going on to other parts of the Bible and finding something more meaningful and relevant to your life, that, that what you'll see is that these amazing stories are really stories about our amazing God. And there's stories about amazing faith of people and, and amazing things that happen, yes, but they have great relevance for our life even today. And they're all part of this inspired scripture we call the Bible. 
And all of it is useful uh, for teaching and rebuking. And so hopefully as we go over the next uh, few weeks, you'll see that it has application for your lives even today. And so today we're going to talk about the story of Noah. And uh, as we do, I want to tell you the story through scripture, but I also hope to share with you three insights that, that I've gained as I've read and studied this over the past couple weeks, and that I think that we can get out of this account uh, from the Bible. And so Noah's story begins in Genesis chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, or if you have your smartphone, you might want to open it up, because we're going to cover a lot of scripture today. And uh, I apologize, the scripture in my notes and the scripture on the screen are only slightly different. Uh, it's the same God's word, so don't let that freak you out, okay? But, um, but if you're following along on the screen, you may not read the same thing I read, but it means the same thing. So hopefully, whatever that means, okay? All right, so Genesis 6, uh, verse 1, it says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their, their days will be 120 years. And now before this, Scripture tells us that people lived a lot longer than that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. But God sees the wickedness that people are doing on the earth. And, you know, he decides, I won't, my spirit won't contend with them any longer. Now, that's really Old Testament speak, isn't it? My spirit won't contend with humans any longer. Uh, but if you take the original Hebrew, you can translate that, and it roughly translates to, these kids of mine are getting on my every last nerve. Okay, and so some of you have probably said that, maybe not in Hebrew, but you've probably said that. And so uh, God has gotten to the point where people have made him fed up, you know, that he can't take any more. And so watch what happens in verse five. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Now, this is the part of the story we don't usually think about when we think about Noah. You know, where is this in the murals that you paint on your nursery walls? You know, where is God's wrath in the Fisher Price little people Noah's Ark? It's not there. I've looked. Okay, where, where are the, the dead bodies floating on the water in the flannel graphs that you studied in Sunday school growing up? They're not there. I mean, this is the part of the story that we often overlook, but it's the reason behind the story. People were doing whatever they liked. You know, they were marrying who they liked, and the Lord saw that every thought that we had was evil and decided the absolute best course of action was to destroy it all and start over again. Now, just for a minute, let's think about this, you know, because we are very fortunate, aren't we, to live in a time and a place where Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sin. You know, we are blessed to have a God that's so full of grace that if we just believe in his son, Jesus, you know, if we just follow him, that all of our sin is forgiven. And what a great blessing, what an incredible gift that is to us. But if we're not careful, we can be lulled into thinking that our sin doesn't cost anything. You know, because it doesn't cost us anything. It's kind of like when it's my birthday, if my parents take me out to dinner, I can choose to believe that it is a free dinner, but it's not really free, right? It costs somebody something. It just didn't cost me anything. Well, in the same way, our sin cost God a lot. So just because it doesn't cost you anything, your sin, my sin, it matters. 
I mean, even today it matters. And in this case, God decided that sin was so bad that he would rather wipe out everyone, destroy the whole earth, than to deal with our sinfulness. And that's how big of a deal our sin is. Now, that's not one of the insights that I have. That just comes for free. And so God destroyed a, decided to destroy the whole world. But Genesis 6, 8 says that Noah found favor in God's eyes. And 6, 9 goes on like this. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the peoples of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now look at the wording here. It's very interesting. It says Noah was a righteous man, and it says that he was blameless among the peoples of, peoples of his time. Now what, here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Noah was perfect. You know, it doesn't say that Noah was without sin. What this verse seems to say is that when, when compared with other people, you know, whose every thought was all wickedness all the time, that Noah was pretty good. You know, he was blameless among the peoples of his day. And now, blameless is an interesting word. It's a word, that, uh, literally, that means without blame, right? And, and, and we would use a phrase like this a lot today when we talk about people. We'd say something like this. You know, I wouldn't blame him if he just hauled off and decked the guy. You know, without blame, right? I wouldn't blame her if she just packed her bags and left. And when we usually say that, that we wouldn't blame that person, that they would be blameless, when we usually say that is when their life is good enough so that if they were to do something out of the ordinary, something that we might normally consider sinful, that we wouldn't place blame on them because they've suffered enough. Like that they've been through enough, they've, they've seen enough, they've been good enough in their life that if they were to do something wrong, they would be blameless, right? Well, that's what the Bible uses to describe Noah. He's blameless. But Noah certainly was not perfect. In fact, if we read the rest of this story, we see that Noah was sinful too. And this leads us to our first insight, and it's in your notes if you want to follow along, and it's this. God uses imperfect people. You know, time after time, we see this all throughout Scripture. God calls people who have flaws, you know, people who have sin in their lives. He calls people like you and like me uh, who are imperfect, but uses them to carry out his perfect plan. You know, so don't get fooled into thinking you have to have your act together for God to use you. You don't believe the lie that until you're perfect, God can't use you to glorify his name or, or to do something amazing. You know, he can. He's that good. In fact, there's one thing in this passage, I believe, that tells us why God chose Noah. You know, one line that I, it's very telling, and I think we can learn a lot from it. In Genesis 6, 9, it says this, And he walked faithfully with God. You know, Noah wasn't perfect, but he walked with God. You know, he was always seeking, always learning, always listening. And, and look, there's great power in this statement, this idea of walking with God. You know, it's more than just learning about God. You can read a lot of books and study a lot of scholars and learn a lot of big words, and you may know a lot about God, but still not know God. You know, it's like when I was dating my wife, and I could have chosen to call her friends and ask them about her, right? You know, what's her favorite movie? You know, what's she like? What's her favorite color? What does she like to eat? What are her parents like? And I could have learned a lot about my wife, but I still wouldn't really know her. But if I walked with her, we'd talk. You know, I'd get to hear her heart. You know, when you walk with someone, you get to hear their ideas and their ambitions and, and what they believe. You get to hear about them. You, when you walk with someone, you go where they go. 
you hear what they say and you do what they do, right? You know, when you walk with them, that's what Noah did with God. Noah walked with God, the scripture says. He did it daily. It was an important part of his life. It was a priority for Noah to walk faithfully with God. And because of that, he didn't just know about God, but he really knew God. And because of that, God used him to carry out his purpose. So how about you? Are you walking faithfully with God right now? You're not just reading scripture, not just praying, not just coming to church, although all that's important, but really walking with him. Are you getting to know him? Are you seeking his will in every decision of your life? You know, God uses imperfect people who faithfully walk with him. All right, skip down to verse 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So this is his instruction to Noah. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening of one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark and you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and them. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, there's a lot of instruction here, a lot of detail. And what kind of wood to use and how big to make it and what to coat it with and how many animals to take. And here's how much food you're going to need. And you know Noah's got to be sitting there going, yeah, okay, all right, I think I got it. Okay, can I write this down, you know, and and, uh uh-huh, yeah, okay, and just like grabbing his head. You know, he's got one of those excedrin headaches when he's hearing this. But forget all the detail. I mean, the very idea of building this giant boat in your front yard. I mean, what are his neighbors going to think? I mean, seriously, I get a little upset when my neighbor parks his car in his yard. You know what I mean? And this boat is going to be 300 cubits long, 450 feet long. So just for a visual, that's like 10 tractor trailers stacked end to end. Okay, this is going to take up some space. All right, people are going to notice. This isn't just one of those things that's going to sit there. I mean, the homeowners association is probably going to give them a call, right? 450 feet boat sitting in your... And by the way, there's no water around here. What do you need a boat for anyway, right? Which brings us to another interesting point. And that's that many biblical scholars believe that scripture teaches that before this point in time, it had never rained before. Genesis 2, 5, and 6 says that in the beginning, God had not yet sent rain on the earth, but streams came up from the earth and watered the ground, the whole surface of the ground. And, and when we do see the start of the flood in Genesis 7, it's written like this. Genesis 7, 11 says, On that day, the springs of the great deep burst forth. The same springs that are talked about in Genesis 2, right? That first they burst forth and the floodgates of heaven were open and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So now, how do you explain rain to someone who's never seen rain? I mean, it's never rained. I mean, Noah would probably have just as much luck saying that gumdrops were going to fall from the sky as 
that water's going to fall from the sky, right? I mean, how crazy does this guy look right now? You know, it would be so easy just to give up. It would probably be best for him just to walk away right now. You know, Noah is building a boat he doesn't need for a flood that's not happening from rain that's never fallen before, and he's going to fill it with animals? Oh, my word. Where is he going to get all the animals? I mean, what is a guy to do? Well, Genesis 6.22 tells us just what Noah did. It says this, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And so here's what I think Noah teaches us here. You can't choose your calling, but you can choose how to respond. You know, you don't get to pick the station in life where God wants you. But you can choose to ignore his will for your life and try to do it on your own. Or you can be like Noah and you can do everything just as God commands you. You know, Noah had lots of chances to mess this up. He could have disobeyed. He could have kind of listened. I mean, he could have taken the idea of an ark and run with it and do do it his way, you know, and say, well, okay, God, I get the idea. I need a boat, but I don't have that much wood. And so maybe I won't make it as big or, hey, maybe I want three of this animal or maybe I'm not going to take the mosquito because that might cause a problem later in life. You know, there's a lot of things that Noah could have chosen to do. But Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And as a result, his family survived. You know, so here's one of the second, here's the second insight I think we can gain uh, from Noah's story. And it's this, God rewards radical obedience. God rewards radical obedience. Now, what does that mean, radical obedience? Well, radical obedience is doing everything God tells you to when he tells you to do it. You know, history is littered with the bodies of people that kind of obeyed God. I mean, you can look throughout all of Scripture and you can see people, person after person, who kind of obeyed God and it didn't work out very well for them. I mean, we see the Israelites, for instance, who time after time were told to go take a land and leave no survivors. And they would do that, but then they would keep some of the the treasure and some of the livestock for themselves. And they would die as a result of not doing what God said. You know, or we see a Lot and his family who God told to flee Sodom and never look back. And as Sodom was being destroyed, Lot's wife turns around and looks and she's turned into a pillar of salt. You know, we see these people who do 90% of what God commands and it doesn't work out for them. You know, but God rewards radical obedience. And this verse says that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And as a result, he survived. You know, so if God's calling you to serve somewhere, you better start serving. You know, if God's calling you to just be a mom right now, you better obey him radically and do that. You know, if God's calling you to start tithing or, or giving a tenth of your income to the local church, you know, the Bible says that the first tenth of everything we earn belongs to God. Don't skimp. You know, if God's calling you to take a job or to leave a job or to go to school, you can choose radical obedience or you can choose disobedience. You know, in our lives today, we sometimes feel like we need more confirmation, though, don't we? I mean, sometimes when God tells us to do something, we just need a sign. Just, just one thing, God, just anything. Just show me that it's really you. And so we wait. You know, we don't always obey radically. We wait. You know, if Noah waits, he dies. If Noah waits, all of humankind is wiped out. Now, in your life and in my life, the consequences may not be so severe. But without radical obedience, you may miss out on God's best for your life. 
You know, and here's why. This is why radical obedience is so important to you. You know, God loves you. He's crazy about you. God wants the best for you. You know, he created you and he knows what's best. Now, we don't always like to believe this. I mean, sometimes we like to see God as this, this some kind of ogre, like there's see some supernatural, you know, high school vice principal roaming the halls, waiting for us to mess up so that he can punish us, right? But that's not the picture of God that Scripture paints. I mean, Scripture tells us about a God who is for you. God is for you. And he wants the best for your life. And he's, he's told us through his word how to get the best for, for our lives. And anything other than what he tells us is not God's best for you. You know, and so if we're going to follow God radically, if we're going to obey radically, it's important for us to understand how do we know when God's talking to us or when it's something else, right? I mean, because sometimes we can get so locked in on something that we want to do that we ignore completely what God's saying to do. You know, we can say, use as an excuse to say, well, I feel like God's calling me to do this, or I feel like I'm, I'm called there. Or How do we discern that? You know, God spoke directly to Noah, but we don't always have that luxury. But God still speaks to us today. I mean, even today, real quickly, three ways that I think that we can see that God speaks his will to us. Number one is through scripture. You know, God has given us the whole of his will right here in this book. His whole plan is right here, and he will never contradict his word. And so if you feel like God is telling you to do something that's not in the word, in the word, that's not in the Bible, you know, listen to me. If God's, if you feel like God's telling you to do something that he's already told you, you shouldn't do, it's not God. Okay. I mean, God is not calling you to gamble your house payment on the lotto. All right. God is not telling you that you should divorce your husband. The Bible already tells us that God hates divorce. You know, you shouldn't divorce your wife because God's called you to do that. I had a a person call me one time or call me up on the phone one time and she said, hey, I'm praying about whether or not God wants me to move in with my boyfriend. I said, you don't have to pray about that. Good news. God's already told us. Okay, I can show you. You know, God speaks to us through Scripture. He answers us through Scripture. Number two is through, through prayer. You know, God answers us through prayer. God's Holy Spirit will speak to you. But the problem with me, and maybe this is a problem with you sometimes in prayer, is that we just want to talk. You know, we don't want to listen. Do you have that person in your life that when the phone rings and they're on the caller ID, you know it's going to be an hour. And you know all you're going to do is say, okay, uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. You have that person in your life. You know who I'm talking about, right? You've got a picture in your mind right now. Well, I sometimes wonder if God feels that way about me when I pray. Because all I want to do when I pray to God is talk to him. Hey, God, you're great. You're mighty. You're amazing. Okay, here's what I need. Here's what I want to do today. Here's what I'm hoping. Will you bless my life? God, will you bless this person? Will you heal this person? Will you be with that person? Thank you. Amen. I'm off to something else. And I never take the time to listen to what God has to say to me, you know? And so just once, you know, turn off the radio in your car and pray instead. You don't have to do it every day. Just do it one day and see if it makes a difference. You know, turn off the TV, but don't, don't pick up a book. You know, don't get on the computer. Just pray. And listen, you might be surprised at the clarity you get. You know, some of my, my clearest thinking comes when I'm running or mowing the grass or doing something where I usually have earbuds in and I forget them. You know, that clarity from listening to God is, 
is so amazing. God speaks to us that way. And the third way is this. God speaks to us through other believers. Now, I didn't say other people. Other believers. Uh, Proverbs says it this way. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Can I just say this to you? Some of you are seeking wisdom from the wrong people. You know, many of us are not walking with the wise, but walking with fools. A lot of times, you know, if we've, if we've set our course, you know, we know which way we want to go and we are dead ahead going after it. If we've already decided what direction we want to go, we will listen to anyone who will confirm our calling, won't we? I mean, anyone who affirms our plan, our desire, our direction has permission to speak into our life because they are with us, you know, but that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us if we walk with people who are wise, we will become wise. It doesn't say if we walk with people who agree with us, we will become wise. It says if we walk with the wise, we'll become wise. It says if you hang out with fools, you will suffer harm. Now, a fool, in biblical terms, is someone who is not equipped with God's wisdom. Okay? And many of us have non-believing friends. We have friends that have made poor choices. You know, we have friends whose lives are a mess, and that's great. I mean, you need those people. You need them in your life, and they need you in their life. You need to have friends who don't go to church all the time. You've got to have friends that aren't believers, okay? You need them in your life. But listen to me. Just because somebody's in your life shouldn't give them permission to speak into your life. Walk with the wise and become wise, Scripture says. So think about the people to whom you're most likely to listen. Are they wise? You know, where are they on their spiritual journey? Are they wiser than you? Are they further down the road than you? If not, should you be listening to them? You know, if you don't have people in your life who are wise, uh, who are equipped with God's wisdom, can you seek some out? You know, don't abandon your friends. Don't, don't leave your friends. You may need them in your life, but you might just need to find someone to speak truth into your life. So those are three ways you can confirm God is speaking to you. But once you do, once you confirm that God is speaking to you, radical obedience is the next step. You know, Noah looked crazy to the world, but he did everything just as God commanded him, and he was rewarded as a result. His family got to repopulate the earth as a, resort, as a result. God rewards radical obedience. Let's go on with the story. Genesis 7. We'll skip down to verse 17. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Are you getting the picture? The waters rose greatly on the earth. Okay, the waters were high. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. And then skip down to verse 24. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. And then Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And so he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Okay, this is the incredible part of the story. Okay, this is where our story turns from God's wrath and judgment 
to God's grace. You know, this is where, as incredible as it sounds, that God made the waters recede and Noah and his family found a safe place to land and set up camp and begin to repopulate the world. You know, this is where Noah gets his reward for his obedience. But there's an interesting phrase that's used here in Genesis 8.1. It says this, But God remembered Noah. It almost makes it sound like God had forgotten Noah. Like, like God's up there in heaven and he's walking around, going about his daily business. la di da di da Oh my gosh! I forgot Noah! You know, did I leave the water on down there? I mean, it's like, do you think God has really forgotten that Noah was down there? I mean, the God who created the universe by breathing life into it, speaking it into existence, that God doesn't get too busy to remember one guy and his family floating on a boat. You know, God wasn't so busy. That's not what God's all about. In fact, God can run the universe when there's all of us in it. I mean, there's nearing 7 billion people on the planet. And so I think a a dozen or so isn't too much for him. In fact, one pastor that I listened to, uh, James McDonald, likes to say that God runs the universe with his feet up. You know, I love that. God is so powerful, okay? But instead, I don't think it means at all that God had forgotten Noah and suddenly remembered him. It means this. This is the third insight we get from Noah's story. God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. In fact, God didn't leave Noah and his family out there because he forgot or because he was way too busy. God remembered Noah because the time was right. You know, the time was right. That's it. I mean, think about how hard this whole experience must have been for Noah. He was very blessed that he and his immediate family were the only survivors of this tragedy. You know, they got to set up camp and repopulate the earth. But Noah lost every other member of his family. You know, he lost every friend that he had. He lost all of his livestock, all of his possessions. And and this was not an easy thing for him. And the Bible doesn't give us any insight into Noah's mental state while he's out on that ark. But I would guess that there was some wrestling with God out there. You know, God, why did you have to kill him? He was a good guy. God, why did you have to take that? God, why is this taking so long? You know, when will I ever get off this boat? And I bet many of you know exactly how Noah was feeling right now. You know, I think sometimes we can get so caught up in our circumstances and in how bad things are in our lives that we can feel like God has forgotten us. Sometimes I think we just want to cry out and say, what about me, God? When are you going to remember me? Don't forget I'm out here all by myself. But I think we can see from this story that God's timing is perfect. You know, after the 150 days, the earth had been cleansed. You know, the earth that was dirty before has now been cleansed. You know, at that time, the work in Noah's heart was complete. You know how hard this was for him and And God had finished the work in his heart. And Noah's surroundings were ready for re-entry. And praise be to God who's not willing to put you in a situation until you're ready for it. I mean, think about this. The next time that you're reaching for something that you really want and you wonder if you're ever going to get it, think about what it could mean if you go after it too early. I mean, what are all the negative consequences that could happen if you get something before you're ready for it? And stop and thank God that his timing is always perfect. You know, it may not always be our timing, but it's always perfect. This is the last thing, and then I'll close. Go down to Genesis 9, uh, verse 12. It says, And God said, 
This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds on the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And so so God sets Noah's family down and he blesses them and makes them this promise, never again will I bring a flood to destroy the earth. He makes this, this covenant, this sacred agreement with Noah and his family. And he says that as a symbol of that will be this rainbow. And when I see it in the sky, I'll remember that covenant and I will never again send a flood to destroy the earth. And he didn't. I mean, we serve a God that's true to his word. But watch this. Thousands of years later, when God looked down again and saw how great our sin had become, he decided not to kill every man as payment for our sin, but just one man. Jesus Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans. He says that just as sin entered the world through one man in Adam, so by the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, can we all become righteous. Now, God sent his only son the second time. And so if you ever wonder how big a sacrifice it was for Jesus to pay for your sin, just think about this equation. Jesus equals the world. You know, the second time, God didn't decide to wipe out the whole world. He just killed Jesus. And the first time the whole world was destroyed for sin, the second time it was just Jesus. His sacrifice was enough. What he gave was enough. So Jesus comes along and delivers to us this new covenant. And under this new covenant, God still no longer has to destroy the world as a payment for sin because Jesus has already paid the price for us, for me and for you. You know, Hebrews 7 says it this way. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart for sinners, exalted above the heavens. I mean, that's that's what scripture says about Jesus. You remember what it said about Noah? Noah was righteous and blameless among the people of his time. But here's what it says about Jesus. He's holy, blameless, pure, set apart for sinners, exalted above the heavens. In fact, Jesus was the only one worthy to pay for our sins because he was all those things and we're not. So what does this mean for you? You know, what does it mean in your life to know that that Jesus came and paid for your sins? That it wasn't free? It was very costly but it doesn't cost you anything because God's already paid everything. There's this new covenant. It's available to anyone and it costs God a lot so he can make it free for you and me.